Greek name for the fourth book of the Bible is arithmoi, from which we get our word arithmetic. The title of this book in Latin is the word numeroi, from which we get our word numbers. Now, if you're squirming in your seat, and, and if you're worried that this is going to be a math lesson, and you don't do very well in math, then take heart, don't sweat it. There is much more to the book of Numbers than just numbers. In fact, the Hebrew Bible more aptly entitles this book, In the Wilderness. And that's what the book describes, the nation Israel's wanderings through the wilderness. In fact, there's a better title for this book, in my opinion. I like to call it, How to Turn a 15-Day Walk into 40 Years of Wandering. <laughs> Numbers reveals the reasons why the Hebrews failed to enter the land that God had promised them and why they died in the desert. And this is why this book abounds with lessons for you and me. For spiritually speaking, we have been delivered from the Egypt of sin, and we have been promised rest and blessing. But in order to enter, we, like the Hebrews, need to have faith. If we yield to doubt and fear as they did, we too can end up dying in a wilderness of frustration. And so we're going to begin in verse 1. But before we begin, if you need a Bible tonight, why don't you raise your hand? We'll make sure you get a Bible. We've got... Uh, Cynthia needs a Bible, and anybody else? We've got a couple over here that need Bibles. Good deal. Great. Well, verse 1 begins. Not yet. Does not begin yet. Not until Cynthia gets a Bible. Wonderful. Great. Good deal. Here you go, J.D. A couple more. Right here, J.D., right in front of you. Great. One more, J.D. We're counting. This is the book of Numbers. One, two, three, four, five. Look at that. Great. Good. Okay. Here we go. Give Cynthia a Bible, Lo. She has a Bible? Well, give her, Lo, give her that Bible, and then she can give that Bible back to... I didn't know that we were going to have to just be a Bible shuffling thing tonight. You know? There we go, great. Now we're in good shape. Verse 1 begins. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. It's been 13 months since Israel's exodus from Egypt. Remember, they spent a month and a half getting to Mount Sinai, crossing the Red Sea and getting to the mountain. The next ten and a half months were spent at the foot of the holy mountain where God gave to them the law, the law of Moses. And he gave to them blueprints for the tabernacle. Then the final month and a half was spent erecting this tabernacle and installing the furniture. But now it's time to march. But to march effectively. And to march in unison, you need to get organized. So the Lord spoke, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Notice God calls this horde of people who have spent their whole life as slaves, he calls them an army. Isn't that amazing? Israel was God's army, and he was about to send this nation into war. You see, Canaan was the land that God had promised to his people, but Canaan was no handout. Israel would have to battle to take ownership. And the same is true with God's promises today. We too have to battle doubt and fear and guilt in order to Rise up in faith and take possession of those things that God has promised. He says, and with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. A representative from each tribe will help in this census. Maybe you saw them, but several years ago, 
billboards started popping up in some of the major American cities. And they consisted of quotations that were attributed to God. Here are a few examples. Let's meet at my house Sunday before the game. Here's another one. What part of thou shalt not didn't you understand? We need to talk. Love the wedding, invite me to the marriage. That love thy neighbor thing, I'm in it. Big bang theory, you got to be kidding. My way is the highway. <laughs> Need directions? You think it's hot here. Have you read my number one bestseller? There will be a test. Do you have any idea where you're going? Don't make me come down there. And all these quotations were signed God. But there was one quotation that I think fits the book of Numbers. It says, I love you and you and you and you and signed God. You see, while in bondage, the Hebrews were a nameless, innumerable band of slaves. In Egypt, the individual was expendable. But now the Hebrews belong to God. They're his people. And the first thing they learn is that every single person, each one of them, matters to God. And thus he orders a census to hammer home this point that God wants to know each one by name. He knows where they live. Each person is important to him. It was Augustine who said, and I love this quote, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. And it's true. Nobody gets lost in a crowd with God. He accounts for all his kids. It's been said when God counts people, it means people count to God. But let me add a caution. When God numbers people, it's a good thing. But when man numbers people, it can lead to bad things. For you see, numbering implies ownership. Have you noticed you number only what belongs to you? You don't number somebody else's stuff. You number your own stuff. And that's why in 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David was judged for taking a census. He wanted to know the extent of his kingdom. He wanted to know how broad his dominion actually was. And he forgot that his kingdom was not his kingdom. It belonged to God. The people were not David's subjects. They were God's subjects. And that's why David was judged by God. And you know, this also applies to us in church. It's amazing how counting sheep may get you to sleep at night. But it's also a good way to cause you to fall asleep spiritually. I've known churches and individuals who got off track when they became preoccupied with numbers. In the beginning, the goal of their church was to reach more people. But over time, it can deteriorate into producing more numbers. For churches and for individuals, success Numerical success can be a point of pride. Big crowds, big bank accounts, lots of anything can cause us to boast in our prowess. We forget our prosperity is a result of God's grace and God's blessing, not our own ingenuity. So here's the lesson for us. It's okay for a church to take a census, or for that matter, a shop owner to take an inventory, as long as we're doing it for the right reasons. You see, if you're throwing a party, you want a head count, don't you? You want to count the crowd, but you do so so you can supply enough food and, and enough entertainment and enough chairs in the room or whatever. You number in order to be a good host, not in order to boast, and that's the difference. By maintaining a church directory, it enables us to be a better host, to better communicate, to better minister to you. But we should always check our motive. Is it to guide or is it to gloat? Beginning in verse 5, Moses and these 12 tribal leaders, they take their census. Read the rest of chapter 1 and you'll discover that the tribe of Reuben numbered 46,500. Simeon, 59,300. Gad, 45,650. Judah, 74,600. 
Issachar, 54,400. Zebulun, 57,400. Ephraim, 40,500. Manasseh, 32,200. Benjamin, 35,400. Dan, 62,700. Asher, 41,500. And the tribe of Naphtali, 53,400. Who can read those back to me now? Judah was the largest tribe. Judah had 74,600 men, 20 years and older. And Manasseh was the smallest tribe, just 32,200. Verse 45 tells us, So all who were numbered of the children of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel, all who were numbered were 603,550. And remember, that was just the men 20 years old, at least 20 years old. Add women and children to that number, and there were probably 2 to 3 million people who marched with Moses through the wilderness. But the Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribes. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel, but you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, and over all things that belong to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. One tribe was not numbered among the fighting men, the Levites. They were to have holy hands, not bloody hands. You see, the other tribes were to fight the battles, but the tribe of Levi was to minister to God. Now notice if you review this census, there were 12 tribes counted. But when you add Levi, that makes 13. In fact, there were really 14 different tribes listed at least in one of the biblical lists of the tribe of Israel. At times Levi appears, at other times Joseph appears. At times Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's two sons, take Joseph's place but here's what's interesting. Though there's 14 names, it's kind of a shell game. Because whenever the tribes of Israel appear, God is consistent. There are always 12. Always 12 tribes. Just a different 12, but always 12 tribes. And when the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levites shall come, take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. You know, I have discovered that one of the keys to life is to find out what God wants you to do and then just do it. Don't try to do what's not your job. You know, when I get in the most trouble is when I try to do something that's not my job, something that I'm not called to do. Here in this case, you know, the Levites were the ones that were to set up the tabernacle, take down the tabernacle, work in the tabernacle. But if anyone came near, not of the tribe of Levi, he would be put to death. And I might add, many other people have died trying to do somebody else's job. Stick to what God's called you to do. Verse 52 tells us, The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard, according to their armies, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony there, there, that, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they did. And now this army is ready to march. Chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Each tribe was assigned a specific spot around the tabernacle to pitch their tents. They camped under the banner that depicted their tribe's coat of arms. Let me summarize some of these next few verses a little for you. Three tribes camped on each of the four sides of the children of Israel. I had a slide for this, but apparently it didn't, didn't go real well, so you have to use your mind a little bit here tonight. But imagine the tabernacle in the middle, 
And there's three tribes this way, three tribes this way, three tribes this way, three tribes this way. This direction's east, this direction's west, this direction's north, this direction's south. Now he tells us on the east, Judah was the closest to the tabernacle. Then came Issachar and Zebulun. To the south there was Reuben, then Simeon, and then Gad. The west side story was Ephraim, Manasseh, and then Benjamin. And to the north, those Yankee tribes, were Dan and Asher and Naphtali. Now from a practical standpoint, this arrangement of the camp was strategic. It was a way to maximize space. And it made for a ring of protection around the tabernacle. And when the camp broke and marched, it made it smoother and easier to mobilize and to move out. But it also, it also said something about God's heart for the nation Israel. For at the center of the camp was the tabernacle. It was the place of worship. And Israel's national life, God was saying, was to be centered around Him and around the worship of Him. These were the practical reasons behind the arrangement of the camp. But it's from a spiritual perspective that you see the real strategy behind God's design. For the tabernacle was at the hub. And out from the hub came four spokes of three tribes each. Imagine though what the camp of Israel looked like from God's perspective. Think about it from an aerial view. There's three tribes this way, three tribes this way, three tribes this way, three tribes this way. What shape does that form? It forms the shape of a cross. Isn't that amazing? From God's vantage point, whenever He looked down upon His people, He was reminded of the means by which He would save them. All of their sacrifices would speak of one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting here that in verse 2, we're told that each of the 12 tribes camped under the banner of the four lead tribes on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. And remember, the banner was the coat of arms. It was the insignia. And we know what these insignias were. Judah marched under the banner of a lion, Reuben a man, Ephraim an ox, and Dan an eagle. And this is so fascinating. For whenever we get an opportunity to peer into the heavenly throne room, passages like Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4, you can reference them later. Whenever we look into heaven, we always find four living creatures or angels. And it's interesting the faces that they have. They have the face of a lion and the face of a man and the face of an ox and the face of an eagle. It's like seeing the banners of Judah and Reuben and Ephraim and Dan. You see, it seems this camp of Israel was a type of God's throne room in heaven. It was a symbol of the cross. It spoke spiritual meaning as well as had physical practicality. When they began to march, the eastern tribes broke first, followed by the southern three tribes. Then comes verse 17. Then the tabernacle of meeting shall move out from the camp of the Levites, in the middle of the camps, as they camp, so they shall move out, everyone in his place, by their standards. The tabernacle was placed in the middle. It was the heart of their procession. And after the tabernacle, the western tribes, they broke camp, followed by the caboose. Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, they brought up the rear. They acted as the rear guard. Verse 32 tells us, these are the ones who were numbered of the children of Israel by their fathers' houses. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces were 603,550. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Here's a point. Remember, there are some things that you count, and there are some things that you don't count. They were to count all the tribes, but not the tribe of Levi. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's houses. 
And imagine three million people now on the move. It must have been an imposing sight, and it must have struck fear in the hearts of their enemies. Chapter 3. Now these are the records of Aaron and Moses when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he consecrated to minister as priests. Now you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? They died before the Lord when they offered profane fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. Remember that story? How they worshipped God in a way that pleased them and not Him? Fire fell from heaven and they turned into crispy critters. Nadab and Abihu were the first pastors ever to suffer from burnout. And so Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests under the oversight of Aaron, their father. Now remember, all the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. And this is important to keep in mind. Only Aaron, his sons, and their descendants could serve as priests over Israel. Verse 5 tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. And they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. Levi was to be the priestly tribe. And they were to come alongside Aaron and his sons to help them in their ministry. I think there's a parallel in the New Testament. They were to come alongside the high priest to help in his ministry, just as the elders and the deacons need to come alongside the pastor in our church to help us serve the body of Christ. I think our elders and deacons are more or less New Testament Levites. You see, the point is, is that every ministry is too big for one man. Every ministry. And that's why there needs to be delegation. That's why other people need to get involved. The high priest needed help. So does your pastor. Now notice the Levites are given to the high priest for two reasons. Notice verse 7 tells us, They shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation. Did you notice that? They were to attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation. And I think here's another analogy. In a sense, we are all Levites. And who is our high priest? Who does Hebrews 7 say is our high priest? Jesus Christ, you're right. But what does it really mean? To serve the Lord. Here we find a model. First it means to attend to his needs. And this is why Jesus wants a personal relationship with you and me. So we can know his heart. He wants us to be tender and sensitive to what's important to him personally. Our role as Levites is to be attending to our high priest's needs. We make Jesus happy when we worship him. We make him happy when we're attentive to the instructions he whispers to us through the Holy Spirit. But also, Jesus wants us to attend to the needs of the whole congregation. That's the second thing the Levites did. And we serve Jesus by serving each other. If you love Jesus, I'll learn to love you and you'll learn to love me. Verse 8 tells us, Also, They shall attend to all the furnishings of the tabernacle of meeting and to the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are given entirely to him from among the children of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Only the Levites were supposed to do the job of the Levites. Later, we're going to read about a king. His name was Uzziah. And though he was a king, which meant he was from the tribe of Judah, he wanted to be a priest. But when he went into the holy place, dressed up like a priest, God struck him with leprosy. I guess in light of Leviticus, God let him off light. According to this law, he was to be put to death. Here's the point. Find out what God has called you to do and then stick to it. We can die a slow death when we try to do somebody else's job. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now here God works a deal with Israel. You might say he makes a trade. The Hebrews were supposed to dedicate their firstborn of every family to God. It was a thank you to God for saving their firstborn while they were in Egypt. You remember the death plague that passed over the houses and the firstborn of every house died unless the blood was spread on the doorposts and the thresholds. But here God barters with Israel. Okay, I won't take the firstborn. Instead, I'll just take the tribe of Levi. And he says here that he'll accept the 22,000 Levites as a substitute for Israel's firstborn. Verse 14 tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the children of Levi by their father's houses, by their families. You shall number every male from a month old and above. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. These were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the next few verses list the sons of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And each of the families are numbered. There were 7,500 Gershonites, another 8,600 Kohathites, and 6,200 Merariites. The total number of the Levites, we're told, was 22,000. And when you add men and, I'm sorry, when you add women and kids and, and women, bleh, bleh, when you add the wives and the daughters, to the tribe, then the tribe of Levi probably numbered around 80,000. Verse 23 tells us, The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. And the leader of the father's house of the Gershonites was Eliasaph, the son of Lael. The duties of the children of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting included Notice this, the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the court, the hangings of the court which are around the tabernacle and the altar, and their cords according to all the work relating to them. If you're taking notes, the Gershonites handled the tabernacle fabrics. Fabrics. Verse 29. The families of the children of Koath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle, and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the families of the Kothites were Eliasaphon, the son of Uziel. Their duty included the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils for the sanctuary with which they ministered, the screen, and all the work relating to them. Kohath oversaw, oversaw the furniture. The furniture. Notice verse 32, God places one of Aaron's sons over the Kothites. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall be the chief over the leaders of the Levites with oversight of those who kept charge of the sanctuary. And I want you to notice there was a hierarchy. Apparently there was a chain of command. Evidently God is into oversight and organization. Verse 35, And the leaders of the father's house of the families of Merari were Zuriel, the son of Abahal, Hel, Hal, Hul, Hul, Hul. These were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And the appointed duty of the children of Merari included the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, its utensils, all the work relating to them and the pillars of the court all around with their sockets, their pegs, and their cords. In other words, the family of Merari was in charge of transporting the frame. There will be a test on this next week. Gershon handled what? The fabrics. The Kohathites oversaw what? The furniture. And Merari was in charge of the frame. There will be a test on this next week. Verse 38 tells us, Moreover, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tabernacle of meeting, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons. 
keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel. But the outsider who came near was to be put to death. Remember, on the east side of the tabernacle was right by the entrance into the tabernacle. And so Moses and Aaron were situated there. That gave them best access. All who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord by their families, all the males from a month old and above were 22,000. Imagine, 22,000 men, and every one of them had Levi genes. Then the Lord said to Moses, Number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from a month old and above, and take the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel, and the livestock of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the livestock of the children of Israel. And so Moses numbered all the firstborn among the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded him, and all the firstborn males, according to the number of names from a month old and above, of those who were numbered of them were 22,273. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. But it wasn't really an even swap. God was getting shorted 273 people. And God never gets cheated. He sees to that. Verse 46. And for the redemption of the 273 of the firstborn of the children of Israel, who are more than the number of the Levites, you shall take five shekels for each one individually. You shall take them in the currency of the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 gurus, and you shall give the money with which the excess number of them is redeemed to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above, those who were redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the children of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. See what happened? God was getting shorted 273 people, and so he basically had them pay a redemption price to make up the difference. There are a couple of problems here that we need to sort out. First, with 603,550 men, why were there only 22,273 firstborn? Did that catch your attention? If 90% of the men were married... That would mean there would be just one firstborn child per every 24 marriages. It means there were a lot of barren marriages. But that's not the case. Here's the answer to the dilemma. This number of firstborn was probably just those that had been born after they left Egypt. If it had been retroactive, the number would have been much larger. And there's another apparent problem we need to sort out. If you add the total of each of the three families of Levites, you know, we went over that earlier. If you add those totals, you don't get 22,000. You get 22,300. And there are several possibilities for the difference. First, Moses may have just simply rounded off. We do that today. But given the detail that he's taking here, I doubt if that was the case. The second possibility, which I think is the most likely, is there were 300 firstborn among the Levites. And since God already possessed the firstborn, they didn't count in the total. Either way, the point is you need to trust your Bible. If you study it, if you look objectively, there's a good reason for every one of these so-called alleged discrepancies. Chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who entered the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Notice the mandatory retirement age for a priest in Israel, 50 years old. 
They served just 20 years. They started when they were 30, they ended when they were 50, and then they stepped aside to give the younger guys an opportunity. Today, someone might want to slap God with an age discrimination suit. The priest started at 30, they retired at 50. And it's interesting, you remember Jesus didn't really begin his ministry until he was around 30 years old. The next few verses explain how the tabernacle furniture was packed for transport. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his son shall come and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue and they shall insert its poles. Now you remember what happened when King David got a little too flippant, a little too casual with God's holiness? Remember, he wanted to bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem, but he put it on a cart. That's the way the Philistines had sent it back over from the Philistine territory on a cart. And when the ark began to slide off the cart, perhaps it hit a rock, I don't know, a man by the name of Uzzah, he reached up to grab it. And the moment he did, God struck him dead. He had touched what was holy and what was not to be touched by mortal man. And David, King David, was to blame. You see, he had tried to serve God his own way. He had tried to serve God with the methods of the Gentiles, with the methods of this world. That's a mistake that a lot of churches are making today. And it always brings death in some form or fashion. Guys, write this down. God's work always needs to be done God's way. They were to take the ark, they were to cover it properly, then they were to slide the poles into the rings that were attached to its side, and they were to carry it on poles. On the table of showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. Notice they carried the bread on the table. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skins and they shall insert its poles. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays and all its oil vessels with which they service it. Then they shall, carry, they shall put it with all its utensils in, the covering, in a covering of badger skins and put it on a carrying beam. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. Then they shall take all the utensils of service with, with which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth, cover them with a covering of badger skins, and put them on a carrying beam. Also they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread it on it, a covering of badger skins, and insert its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. They shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The Kohathites were the furniture movers, the holy mover company of Israel. They moved the furniture. And notice they use these blue cloths. I wonder if that's any reason why the U-Haul gives you blue cloths when you rent one of their trailers. You ever notice that? They give you all those that big stack of blue cloths. I don't know. The appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, 
But do this in regard to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task. But they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered lest they die. Only the priest could lay eyes on the holy furniture. The Korthites were supposed to use their backs. They carried it, not their eyes. They were to walk, not gawk. But did you know that in Christ Jesus, we're not only allowed to serve God like the Kohathites, but we are given the privilege of beholding His glory like the priests. We get the best of both worlds. Did you know that? And oh, the blessing that we take for granted, our access to God, that we can see His glory and know His glory and know His love in our hearts. That is a blessing that the Levites could only dream of. Well, in verses 21 through 28, the Gershonites are given the same age parameters and put in charge of the fabrics of the tabernacle, the curtains, the coverings, the screens, the hangings. And Aaron's son Ithamar was placed in charge of the Gershonites. In verses 29 through 33, we're told that Ithamar was also in charge of the Merariites. They too were eligible to serve from 30 to 50 years old. And they were in charge of the tabernacle's frame. The boards, the bars, the pillars, the sockets, the pegs, the cords, the little guide wires that, that held it up. Remember these Levitical responsibilities. There will be a test next week. Koath moved what? The furniture. Gershon moved what? The fabrics. And Merari moved the frame. You got it. You guys are going to do good next week. Well, in the remaining verses, Moses and Aaron and the leaders number the Levites eligible to serve, those who were between the ages of 30 and 50. And here's their totals. There were 2,750 Kohathites. There were 2,630 Gershonites. And there were 3,200 Merariites, a grand total of 8,580 eligible Levites, and your reaction to that news is, why in the world would I care? And some of you are probably thinking, why in the world am I sitting here listening to these number of Levites when I could be home watching television? How could this possibly be relevant to me? Well, here is the big lesson that I hope you learn from tonight's study. God places tremendous value on organization. The Israelites had the law. They had the tabernacle. And I'm sure they were tempted to just move out. But God knew that they also had to be organized to be effective. This new nation needed to number its ranks, develop procedures for operation, and then clearly lay out responsibilities. Guys, throughout your Bible, you will find that God puts a premium on effective utilization of time and resources. God doesn't like to see things wasted. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he first arranged the groups of people into 50s and 100s. And as the bread was broke, Jesus gave it to the disciples to then in turn give it to the people. Notice he didn't give it to them himself. He knew how to organize and then he knew how to delegate. And you remember when it was over. We're told that there were baskets full of fragments that had been left over. Jesus had even collected the leftovers. He doesn't like to see anything wasted. You know, I run into Christians all the time who call themselves opponents of organized religion. Well, are you in favor of disorganized religion? They assume that the more organized you are, the less spiritual you are. And I admit there is the possibility that you can organize out the work of the Holy Spirit. I have seen that done, and I recognize that danger. Church leaders can become so dependent on their management of the ministry, that they don't leave God room to work. They end up trusting in the flesh, not the spirit. But you can't really read through the book of Numbers without concluding that the God we worship is also organized. And he intends for us to organize. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 echoes the same thought. The Lord commands his church, let all things be done decently. And in order. Don't think it's more spiritual to just meet together without a plan and a purpose. Remember Numbers 1 verse 3 calls Israel what? The army of the Lord. And just 
like that, you and I are soldiers of Christ. And no army who expects to win goes into battle without a plan and without a strategy and without some organization. I think too many churches today are weak because of a lack of organization. No one knows their roles. No one knows their duties. And that's why they waste time and duplicate effort. Ministry is done sloppily rather than with excellence because they're not organized. I like the old saying, don't agonize, organize. And that's a good word for the church. Remember Romans 12 verse 8. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that of leading or spiritual management. Hey, we're not quenching the Spirit when people exercise that gift. We are being utilized by the Spirit. He's given that gift to the church. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. All life has structure. You take away the skeleton from your body, the skeleton on which your organs hang and over which your skin is wrapped. Take away your skeleton, and what will you be? Just a mound of goo. It's what some churches are like, just a mound of goo. Spiritual life also needs structure and organization. That's why you need to know the number of those Levites. Now, the camp is organized, but it also has to be purified. And that's what we reach in chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge. And oh boy, we remember all those bodily discharges, don't we? (laughs) Chapter 15, get the tape. We're not going over that stuff again. That was an issue that I just don't want to deal with again. And whoever becomes defiled by a corpse, you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. Now, leprosy was contagious. So to isolate the leper was a matter of good health policy. And you know, I think there's some wisdom for the church in this policy. You know, a baby with green snotty stuff coming out of his nose needs to be put outside the camp. Or at least the nursery. Until it clears up, lest they contaminate everybody else in the nursery. Does anybody agree with that? That's good. Well, if your baby's in the nursery, you'll agree with that. That's good wisdom. I hope you also remember the concept of ceremonial uncleanness. Do you remember we talked about that? A person with a discharge or a person defiled by touching a corpse was considered unclean, not for moral reasons, but for ceremonial or symbolic reasons. Either way, God required purity in the camp. And obviously these ceremonial issues no longer apply to believers under the new covenant. But the principle remains, God desires purity in his camp. And thus a church that condones sin, a church that turns its head to immorality, is no longer the church that God desires. If we're going to be effective, God wants there to be purity in our camp. Verse 5 tells us, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. In other words, real repentance requires an attempt at restitution. Hey, if you sin against another person, don't just shed a few crocodile tears and offer up a few lame excuses. If you're really sorry, you're going to try to pay the damages and compensate them for the problems you've caused. You'll add 20% to it. A glib apology is no substitute for an attempt at restitution. And this is also true of New Testament believers. You remember when Jesus forgave Zacchaeus? His first response was to repay fourfold those people he had cheated. He wanted to pay back plus some. 
It's interesting that the law required them to pay back 20%. The love of Jesus called Zacchaeus to want to pay back 400%. Which is the most powerful motivator? The law or the love of Jesus? Our reaction to our repentance would be to exceed these requirements. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. In addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him, every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. A sacrifice was offered to God, but it was eaten by the priest. And the rest of the chapter contains an interesting ritual for a wife who has been accused of adultery by her husband, or at least has been suspected of adultery by her husband. Verse 11 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. In other words, there's no evidence here. The husband is just suspicious. Rather than hiring a private investigator like they do today, the husband resorts to a ritual. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal, about a tenth of a bushel. He shall pour no oil on it, notice that, and put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy. An offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. No oil, no frankincense. This means there is no joy in this procedure. I mean, this issue hurts. And it still does today, doesn't it? I've counseled so many people whose spouse was unfaithful. And it absolutely brutalizes the victim. Adultery shatters the victim's self-worth. And it tortures them with guilt. How could I have done things differently? And it makes them think that they've done something wrong to cause their spouse's sin. Victims of adultery live for years wondering if they'll ever be able to trust someone again. There is no oil or frankincense in adultery. There is nothing soothing or sweet about it. It hurts. It hurts everyone involved. Verse 16, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. <coughs> the priest shall take holy water. And notice this is the only place in the Bible where the term holy water ever gets used right here. The priest puts the holy water in an earthen vessel and takes some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and puts it into the water. And so there's precedence here for... Not necessarily always sweeping the floor here at the church. We can leave some dust on the floor from time to time because you know, there's probably some good use for it. Don't tell Adam that. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head. And this was a symbol of shame. In those days, prostitutes were the ones that wore their hair down. And put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. 
And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. And so even if you were innocent, you still were put through this procedure. And it was a humiliating procedure. And I suppose the one lesson we could learn from this story is don't marry a man who's jealous and suspicious. Maybe there's another lesson we can gain here. Secret sin. A secret affair. A little cheating on the side. A little flirtation in the office. My husband doesn't know. My my wife doesn't know about it. But I'll tell you. Oh, how it makes your belly swell. How it makes your thigh rot. And when you hold on to that and you know you're guilty. And you don't confess it. And you just live with it. It makes life miserable. And it eats you up on the inside. And it causes you to rot. And it causes you to swell. And the only cure is the same cure for all sin. Confession and repentance. The Lord's forgiveness. Even your spouse's forgiveness. Verse 23. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. And he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter. And her belly will swell, and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. What a bizarre ritual. What a bizarre deal here. But you need to understand that it has important spiritual lessons for you and me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. I'll put it on the big screen. You should know it by now. It says this. All these things happened to Israel as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Everything in this Old Testament is an example to us, and it's for our instruction. And that includes swelling bellies and rotting thighs. And this ritual conveys important spiritual lessons for us. I just have no idea what they are. You should probably study this week and let the Lord speak to your heart and give you some wisdom because I'm just about out. I suppose this would be a good deterrent to flirting. I suppose that's a lesson for us, a message for us. Don't flirt. And give your husband or your wife any cause for suspicion. There's probably some other good lessons for us as well. But I'll just let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and show you that. It is a bizarre ritual though. There's one other observation I will make about this. And I think this is fascinating. Notice here, under the law. Under the law of Moses, tabernacle dirt put into the water is used to condemn an adulterous woman. Tabernacle, under the law, tabernacle dirt is used to condemn 
an adulterous woman. In the New Testament, temple dirt is used to forgive an adulterous woman. You remember in John chapter 8, verse 6, when they brought the woman who was taken in adultery and threw her down at Jesus' feet, what did Jesus do? He wrote in the dirt. And whatever it was he wrote caused those Pharisees to drop their rocks and walk away in humiliation. And Jesus looked up and he forgave the woman. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so that's an interesting point there. And that's where we'll stop tonight. It's 8 o'clock. And we're done. First five chapters of the book of Numbers. Did you enjoy it? Great. Next week we're going to study the next five chapters. Numbers chapters 6 through 10. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Bless us as we go. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Bless our fellowship now as we mingle and share with each other and pray with each other. Continue to do great things in our heart and lives, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And next Sunday morning, we're going to be, don't, don't think I forgot, we're going to be talking about loving God with all our strength. Okay? You're dismissed.